Well, we've come now in our journey through the Gospel of Matthew, which we've been in for some time now. We've come now to the Last Supper. Called this because it was Jesus' last meal with his disciples before his death. Now, you can imagine with a last meal, it's kind of a somber occasion. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't even know if I'd have an appetite to eat my last meal. The last meal before being executed, you know, there would be a certain sense of heaviness in the room. Yes, the air would have been thick with sorrow and heaviness as Jesus spoke of his betrayal and his death. And as the disciples nervously asked, is it I? Am I going to be the one who's going to betray you, Jesus? And yet the sorrow that hung heavy in the air was shot through with beams of hope as Jesus instituted a new religious feast to give them a promise of a glorious reunion in the future and to show them the purpose of why he would die. In a strange way, to those who believe Jesus' words, this supper would have been, a, been an odd mixture of sorrow and heaviness and yet also hope at the same time. In a way, the Last Supper was the Last Supper, but in another way, it was not the last. This would be the last time that Jesus would recline at table with this crew of hand-picked disciples in this way, in this life, as he had over the last three years. It was kind of the end of a season, if you will. But it was not the end of all things. It was the beginning, in another way. The beginning of many feasts, many observances of this very supper that have been observed by Christians down through the centuries, from the days of the apostles even to us here today. And it points forward to another feast when Jesus' followers will be reunited with him in the kingdom of his Father. So if you have your Bibles this morning, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, you can find this on page 781 if you're using the Pew Bible. And uh, if you're not familiar with the Bible, the uh, big bold numbers, those are the chapter numbers, the smaller little subscript numbers, those are the verses. Matthew 26, page 781 in the Pew Bibles. And as you find, uh, as you find your place, I want to ask, just out of respect for God's Word, you please stand if you're able. Matthew 26, starting in verse 26 down to verse 29. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread... And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many 
for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. You may be seated. Well, as we consider the meaning of what Jesus does here in instituting this new religious feast, it's important to remember the setting, the context, which was the Passover feast. So if you look a few verses up at verses 17 through 19, we see that Jesus and some of his disciples, they were gathering to eat the Passover. He'd sent his disciples into the city of Jerusalem to prepare to eat the Passover. Passover was that ancient feast wherein the people of Israel celebrated and commemorated God's miraculous deliverance of them from Egyptian slavery. And there had been uh, ten plagues that God had sent on the Egyptians. And the last plague was the most severe of all, the death of the firstborn. And as the Lord prepared to strike Egypt in this way and to free the Israelite slaves, he told them to take lambs, spotless lambs, innocent, perfect lambs. And those lambs were to be slain, slaughtered as a sacrifice. And their blood was to be put on the doorposts. And whenever God saw the blood, he would pass over. As Exodus 12 says, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. And so this was a somber occasion in one way. It was a, a sobering occasion that something had to die. And yet through what died, they would live. This lamb would die in place of their firstborn. Why would the Lord do such a thing? Is it because he hates animals? No. God made all things good. He loves animals. And yet, this lamb, these Passover lambs, had a very important purpose to play. They were to teach God's people of God's coming salvation. They were to foreshadow the Lamb of God who would be slain. The Lamb of God who would, when, when he sees when, when the Lord sees his blood, will pass over the sins of all of those for whom he was slain. So ever after that time, the Passover was to be an essential part of the religious life of the Israelites. But recognize, just recognize, the Passover didn't merely commemorate what God did in the past. It also foreshadowed the deliverance, the deliverance from God's judgment and the bondage, not of the Egyptians, but of Sin by the blood of another lamb, by the Lamb of God, who significantly would be slain at what time of year but at the Passover. Even as the New Testament calls Jesus in 1 Corinthians 5 saying, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. And so Jesus fulfills the Passover He's the meaning of the Passover. It's one, it's one reason why as New Testament Christians, we no longer celebrate the Passover 
because its purpose has been filled, fulfilled. And Jesus, as we see in this, in this text, he takes this moment of the Passover feast and he gives it, he infuses it with new meaning. He takes the elements whereby they would celebrate the Passover and he gives them a new meaning in what we call the Lord's Supper. And so the main idea, the main lesson from this passage is this, that in instituting this religious feast, Christ was reminding his followers of the purpose of his suffering, his body given for us, his blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And also he was giving them a promise of blessing that he would one day drink with his people in his father's kingdom. So that's kind of the, the main lesson of these verses in a nutshell. The Lord's Supper is a religious feast which reminds us of the purpose of Christ's suffering, why he had to die, and the promise of his blessing, what his death accomplished, what it gained for his people. We'll consider this main idea in two points this morning. First of all, that the Lord's Supper reminds us of the purpose of Christ's suffering, and secondly, that it reminds us of the promise of his blessing. So our first point, the Lord's Supper is a religious feast that reminds us of the purpose of Christ's suffering. As Jesus, as he took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples. As verse 26 says, take, eat, this is my body. And then in verse 27 he says, and he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Now, what, what does this mean? What does this mean as Jesus is, is explaining the meaning here? People have, have read this text and have come to different explanations of what it means, what exactly Jesus is doing here. And so I think what it would be helpful for us this morning is to first of all, consider what this doesn't mean, and then consider what it does mean, what the significance of the Lord's Supper is. Now, many have believed, and still do today, that Christ literally turned the bread into his flesh in some mysterious physical way, so that though it still appeared to be bread, it was actually, biologically, his body. And that the cup, though, though it appeared to be the, the red wine, it was actually his red blood cells and white blood cells and platelets and plasma in a, in a biological and physical way. Uh, this is the, the Roman Catholic teaching. They, they call this the miracle of transubstantiation. There's a big word for you. You can throw that around to somebody today. We talked about transubstantiation today. Don't ask me to spell it, but... So are we to think, though, that Christ, when he says, this is my blood of the covenant, that he was literally turning the wine into his blood and the bread into his body? You know, others, others have believed that the bread and the wine and the Lord's Supper are, are mystically connected and united with the true physical body of Christ, 
but they nevertheless remain bread and wine. So this, is the, this would be the position held by Lutherans, Episcopalians, and some Eastern Orthodox groups. They would say that the, the bread and the wine, that Christ's body is in, with, and under the bread and the wine. And so that as we eat, you know, the bread's still bread and the wine's still wine, but somehow we're getting Christ into our bodies in that act in, in a, some kind of mysterious way. And this view is, has been known as consubstantiation. But I don't believe that the most straightforward reading of these verses requires such a biological and physical interpretation as these groups have held. For one thing, the doctrine of the incarnation, that Jesus, God, the second person of the Trinity, took on a true human body, was born of the Virgin Mary. This teaching argues against this. I would, I would point out, as, as others have in the past, James Boyce, um, a fairly well-known Presbyterian pastor, points out that it is the nature of bodies that they cannot be in more than one place or exist in more than one form at the same time. That's what it means to have a physical human body. I mean, you're, you're here and you're not over there. You're here. Your body is where it's sitting in the pew. And so when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he was before the disciples in true bodily form. And if he was present in bodily form, his body could not have been present in the bread nor his blood in the wine. And so he, what he's saying there is that this would create potential problems for the view that, that Christ took on a true human body like ours with all of the limitations of a human body. That he wasn't some kind of, that, that his body wasn't some kind of super demigod body but that it was a human body like ours, though he also had a holy divine nature. But what's more, we can learn something about how, how to understand Jesus' words by how the disciples seemed to understand them. Now, if the disciples had taken Jesus to mean that the bread and the wine were being transformed physically into his body and blood, no doubt they'd have had some reservations about eating and drinking. I mean, you're, you're, what we're talking about here is, is Jews. It was an abomination for them to drink blood. All through their generations, this was seen as, it was actually in their law. You must not drink the blood. You had to drain the meat and pour out the blood. It could not be consumed. And they couldn't even eat pork can you imagine the shock at eating a human body? And yet you see that no, none of them asks or is troubled by, by this. None of the disciples at the, at the Lord's Supper are recorded as, as asking an explanation. Like, Lord, are you sure? Doesn't it say in the law? That's, that's not what they say. And so this, this also would give evidence that Jesus is speaking of the bread and the wine as, as signifying, as symbolizing his body and blood. Craig Keener writes that, quote, we should not understand this is my body literally, just as Jesus' Jesus's contemporaries did not take literally 
the standard Jewish interpretation spoken over the Passover bread. So, I mean, remember the setting. They're at the Passover, and this was a meal full of symbolism, a meal full of symbolism. They would say something along the lines of, you know, this is the bread, as they, as they had the bread. This is the bread of affliction our ancestors ate when they came from Egypt. Now, taken literally, that bread would have been centuries old, and it would have already been eaten anyways. No, the disciples would have been used to symbolism in the Passover meal. They would have been expecting symbolism associated with the Passover. They would have been expecting food items that carried a meaning, that represented something. They would have been familiar with this. The traditional Passover ritual included an explanation of the meaning of the unleavened bread and herbs, and Jesus takes that opportunity to introduce a new level of symbolism. No, so Jesus, he's sitting right there in front of them. He's speaking to them as he held out the bread in his hands and the cup to them as he says, this is my body. As he says, this is my blood. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many. The most obvious way to understand his words would have been to understand that he was speaking in terms of what these things represented, what they symbolized. Now, why does this matter? Well, it may matter for your peace with God. It may matter for your assurance of salvation. It may matter for the glory of God by keeping clear who does the saving and who gets all the glory for it. You see, in those religious systems that, that emphasize the physical eating and drinking of Christ's body, they're often emphasizing that for a reason. Because of their view of what he accomplished or did not accomplish on the cross. Let me say that again. Those religious systems that try to make the Lord's Supper to be a physical eating and drinking of Christ's body, they're usually making a big deal of this because of their view of what Jesus did at the cross or did not do at the cross. So take Roman Catholicism, for example. The official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, according to the Catholic Catechism anyway, teaches that the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, the Mass, is a sacrament that forgives your sin. So you see Christ's sacrifice on the cross, according to them, that made salvation available, but in order for you to receive the forgiveness, you have to receive Christ in through your mouth. And if you have to receive him through baptism, receive his grace through the baptism, baptismal waters. You have to uh, do penance, and you also have to receive Christ through your mouth by eating and drinking. And this is, these are the different channels, the different pathways through which grace comes to you. It's all there. It's like it's in a reservoir, like in a water cooler. But unless you go up and do certain things... It will be powerless to save you. You have to go through the right avenues and, and pull the right levers, so to speak, to put it kind of bluntly. And then, and then you can get the benefits of what Christ did for you by doing these certain things. So in their, in their view, you know, Christ's death on the cross 
it can do nothing to save you unless, unless it is activated and empowered by you doing, performing certain rituals. And this view, this amounts to God and man participating, working together for their salvation in the work of salvation. Let me quote from the Catholic Catechism. Communion with the body and blood of Christ increases the communicant's union with the Lord, forgives him of venial sins, and preserves him from grave sins. So you have to understand there's, there's two categories of sin they're dealing with here. And the Eucharist, when you're eating of what they assume to be, what they believe to be, the physical body and, and drinking of the physical blood of Christ, this, this has a cleansing effect where it actually forgives you of, of smaller sins. Now, if you've done something really bad, if you committed a mortal sin, you are not to take of the Eucharist. You first have to go and perform the sacrament of penance. You have to go and you have to feel a certain sorrow over your sin. You have to confess to the priest, and then you have to make reparations in some way for the great sin you have done. And then you can come and receive the further grace of the Eucharist. Now, again, what, what's going on here? Christ has died. He's died on the cross. His blood has been poured out for the forgiveness of sins. But it's powerless, utterly powerless to do you any good unless you do your part, unless you come and do penance, receive the baptism, receive the Eucharist. Now, the sacrament of penance, as I mentioned a moment ago, this deals with much greater sins. Let me read some of the effects of the sacrament of penance according to the Catholic Catechism. Uh, reconciliation with God as the penitent recovers grace. So you receive grace at baptism, but then you, you've lost it because you've went out and committed adultery or something. So, you know, you may have been saved back then, but now all of a sudden you're on your way to hell. And so you have to work your way back into a good standing with God. So you, you, rec you recover grace. You, are, you receive the remission of eternal punishment incurred by mortal sins. Remission, at least in part, of temporal punishments resulting from sin. So uh, the penance, according to the Catholic Catechism, was instituted for all sinful members of his church, above all for those who since baptism have fallen into grave sin and have thus lost their baptismal grace and wounded ecclesial communion. It is to them that the sacrament of penance offers a new possibility to convert and to recover the grace of justification. Okay, so what does this mean? It means that you, if you really think about it, you don't have peace with God. Because you, no matter how many times you partake of the Mass, it doesn't matter if you've been baptized, it doesn't matter if you've done penance, you might go out and commit a mortal sin tomorrow, and before you feel the right amount of sorrow, before you go to the priest, before you do your acts of penance, you might get hit by a car and end up in hell. You can have 
peace with God one day and not have it the next. You can be on your way to heaven one day and be on your way to hell the next. There's really no certainty. There's no sure peace with God unless you die in a state of grace. And so your salvation isn't accomplished. It isn't sure. It's, it's something that's kind of up in the air. It all depends on what you do and how you properly work the system. And if you are faithful enough, then you will end up in heaven. Then your time in purgatory will be lessened. Then you will escape hell if you work the system correctly. There's not peace in that system. Now, granted, I'm, I'm talking here about traditional, historic Catholic teaching. There, to be honest with you, I have suspicions whether the current pope even believes in an eternal hell. He's, he's uh, said things that would make you think that he's parting from Catholic tradition in many ways. But I'm just saying this, this is what many people believe. And the reason this connects to the Lord's Supper is because is that view of the physical and, and biological eating and drinking of Christ. That is a way that, that they believe you are receiving Christ. We talk about receiving Christ. We're talking about believing on him in faith. This is talking about a work done of consuming Christ into your body. And so, again, this matters for your peace with God, for your assurance of salvation. Can we, as Romans 5 says, really say, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God? Can we say that? Can we really say that He will hold me fast? He will never let me go. He will never leave me or forsake me. Can we have peace with God or must we say, I may have peace with God so long as I don't fill in the blank, commit a mortal sin, lose my baptismal grace. Can you have peace with God? Can you know, as 1 John says, that you have eternal life? Friend, if, if in your understanding of the gospel you can't know, I would just challenge you, go back and reread the scriptures. It may be that the gospel that you have believed is not the true gospel. It's not the gospel that gives this kind of peace. To where, as Romans 8 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not therefore now and then in the future, we're not sure. There is therefore now no condemnation. We have peace with God. Romans 4, 4 through 5 says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Are you working? Are, are you working to have peace with God? When it comes to having peace with God, being sure that you have eternal life and the forgiveness of sins and end up in heaven, are you working for that? Are you trying to make sure that your good outweighs your bad? That you've done enough? 
Or are you not working, but believing? Well, much of that will depend on what you believe Jesus did on the cross. What did he do when he was dying there? How much did he accomplish? Was he simply making salvation available? And then if you do the right things, if you do your part, or was he accomplishing the salvation of his people? You know, this, this speaks personally to me. I was not raised in the Roman Catholic tradition. I was raised in the Baptist. I was a Baptist. But I did not really understand the gospel until I was about 15 years old. And up until that time, I was, I was so focused on what I had to do rather than on what Christ had done. I thought, you know, I've, I was taught that in how you get saved was you pray a certain prayer. You pray the sinner's prayer. And if you pray that prayer, and if you pray it sincerely, if you really mean it, then you will be saved. Write that date in your Bible. And if you ever doubt, turn back to that page. And so I, I prayed the prayer, and then I, I didn't really see any change in my life. I thought, you know, certainly if I'm a Christian, wouldn't I, aren't you supposed to like love God more? Doesn't he start to like work on your life a bit? I, I was seeing where my life was going. It was going away from God. I was becoming a worse and worse person, and I knew it. And I, I knew that Christians still sin, but I, I thought, well, this is, I mean, I'm, I'm like going the complete opposite direction. And so I thought, well, maybe I haven't felt the proper sorrow over my sin. Maybe I haven't resolved to obey God with the right level of intensity. Maybe I need to punish my body in some way, and that will help me. Maybe it'll help God to see how serious I am, and then I can come to him, and I can pray, and he can see my tears and then it will be enough. But friends, Jesus paid it all. Whenever he died on the cross, he said, it is finished. As I began to understand what Jesus did on the cross, I was able to have true peace with God, recognizing that he's not waiting for me to add in my piety, add in my humility, add in my tears. As the song Rock of Ages says, Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Simply by looking to Christ and relying on what He did, that is saving faith. So this matters for your peace with God, that we have a clear understanding of what he did on the cross. And the Lord's Supper is connected. It's related to what he did on the cross. Often our, our understanding of, of what's happening in the Lord's Supper and what Jesus did on the cross, they go together. And so what I, do, what I want to make clear to you this morning is that the Lord's Supper is not a, it's not a highway. It's not a, a, a riverbed that, that channels salvation to us, that channels forgiveness to us, that channels grace to us, but rather we have received, we have received the fullness of Christ. We have the Holy Spirit if we trust in him. The Lord's Supper, rather, 
is, is meant to encourage us. It's meant to remind us of what Christ has done. It's part of our worship to God, which I'll get to in a moment. Now, as Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he said, this is my body given for you. This is my, the cup, this cup is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And when did that happen? Well, it happened when he died on the cross. As 1 Peter 2.24 says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. His blood was poured out for us. As, his, as those thorns ripped into the flesh of his forehead, as, as his back poured out blood from the scourging, as the, as the nails and the, as they pierced through his hands and his feet, his blood was poured out for us, for many, for all of his people, all who believe, for the forgiveness of their sins. Jesus calls it, notice, the blood of the covenant. Now, we, as Brother Chris read for us earlier, there's a lot of blood in Hebrews 9. What was the purpose of it? It was pointing to Christ, the final and ultimate sacrifice, the one who was sacrificed once and for all time. In the old covenant, the covenant made with Israel at Mount Sinai, it was ratified by blood. Exodus 24 records that after making sacrifices, half of their blood was thrown against the altar and half of the blood of the sacrifices was put in basins. And then Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That's their side of the covenant. We will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So that covenant was ratified by the blood of the sacrifice. And one of the reasons why it had to be ratified in blood is because God, the holy God, is making a covenant with sinful people. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Even though the blood of, a, of an animal cannot pay for the sins of a human being, it pointed to the blood of a greater sacrifice, the one who took on human flesh and died for human beings. So that old covenant was ratified with blood. The new covenant is ratified in blood. That old covenant, Israel broke. They were disobedient to God. They did not hold up their end of the bargain. They were exiled from the land that God had covenanted to them. But the Lord promised another covenant which would not be broken. This new covenant was based on better promises. This new covenant was upheld by Christ on behalf of all those who are in him. And we receive the blessings of this agreement, this covenant, through Christ, through his blood of the covenant. And so what Jesus is talking about here when he says, this is my blood of the covenant, he's talking about blessings that God has given to unworthy, guilty people, sinful people. Blessings bought at no lesser cost 
than the blood of Christ. That is how determined God was and is to bless unworthy sinners and make them his people. So the Lord's Supper is a religious feast that reminds us of the purpose of Christ's suffering. I mean, the disciples are like, I thought you were the Messiah. You're supposed to deliver us from the Romans. Why are you dying? Jesus is reminding them this death is not a detour. It's not the failure of God's plan. This is the fulfillment of God's plan because you've got a bigger enemy than the Romans. You've got a bigger enemy than your debt. You've got a bigger enemy than the deep state. Your biggest enemy is your own sin. And what that puts you, where that puts you on the day of judgment before a holy God. And so this Messiah came to save and give you the blessings of forgiveness of sins and eternal life, but it would cost him his own blood. So he was a sacrifice to deal with our sin. Christ's body given over to the pains of death. His life poured out for us as his blood was poured out for us. This is the love of God for sinners. This is the faithfulness of God to be just and holy, to keep his promises to punish sin. And yet also to save those who had committed sin. This was the purpose of Christ's suffering and the Lord's Supper pictures this for us. So Jesus showed his disciples that his suffering was, was not accidental. It was the accomplishment of his salvation. But secondly, and, and more briefly, not only does the Lord's Supper remind us of the purpose of Christ's suffering, it reminds us of the promise of his blessing. It reminds us of the promise of his blessing. Look at verse 29. Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in the kingdom, in my Father's kingdom. Now, as I mentioned in last week's passage, throughout Matthew 26 and 27, you know, evil is at work. The forces of evil are gathering together. They're plotting, they're scheming, they're conspiring. It seems like the devil finally has his day. But in the midst of all of that, God's kingdom is advancing. God's plan is being fulfilled. And Jesus, even as he speaks of his death, he reminds his disciples of what that death will bring for them. The blessing that they will have. And that his death will not be final. That he would drink with them once again in the kingdom of his Father and that he would even abstain from drinking until that day. Abstain from drinking the fruit of the vine until that day when he drinks with them. At Christ's second coming in the paradise of God, the rejoicing is often spoken of in terms of a feast. And this isn't just metaphorical. This isn't just an allegory. There will be feasting in heaven. Not because our bodies will die from lack of sustenance, not because we're starving, but feasting of joy and celebration. As we celebrate the consummation, the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation, his plan to bring fallen sinful people back into relationship and fellowship with God, and in fact, into a greater fellowship than we, than we had even known before the fall. 
so that we may be, that we may receive the very love with which God loves his son. It boggles the mind to consider. And Christ says that on that day, I will drink with you of the fruit of the vine, and not until then, I will wait. And, And by saying these words here at the institution of the Lord's Supper, Christ intends us to be reminded of this promise every time we drink of the cup. It's like, you know, in the old stories when two lovers, maybe they were parting ways for a time, and they wouldn't see each other for a long time, and what do they do? They give each other tokens of their love, something to remember them by. Maybe it's, maybe it's a note, you know, a handwritten note, or, or maybe, it's, maybe it's a flower pressed in a book. Maybe it's a forget-me-not. I don't know how forget-me-nots got their name. That would be an interesting thing to research, but I'm guessing because... They were given by people who loved each other and didn't want, didn't want to be forgotten. And so Christ here, in giving us the Lord's Supper, and giving us this promise, he gives us something to remember him by. And that as we drink, he is not drinking until that day when he drinks with us in the kingdom of his Father. Well, where does this leave us this morning? How do we we apply this truth to ourselves this morning? Well, for one, this text teaches us something about worship. My fellow Christians, you who have believed, you have been born again and brought back into a right relationship with God through the finished work of Christ on the cross, you who have been, you have had, you, you who have had all your sins forgiven, past, present, and future, and have peace with God, you who have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you to empower you to love and live for God. Not, not to get saved or to stay saved, but out of gratitude for the salvation God has accomplished. You now are called to look to God's word to see what his will for your life is. What God, how God would have you to live. And his law is a guide to the believer. It's a guide to show us what, what loving God looks like in our daily lives. Jesus said the first and greatest commandment is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now, we're to love God with our minds. As Jesus says, uh, do this in remembrance of me. Those words are not recorded in, in Matthew's account here, but they are recorded in the other parallel accounts. Jesus wants us to remember. He wants us to think about why he suffered. He wants us to think and remember his promise. We're to love God with our minds. This is a significant part of worshiping God of our loving God, it's done by thinking about God and what God has done for us. Listen, you know, you married couples, uh, remember when you first fell in love with your spouse? You couldn't stop thinking about them, right? You, you, they interested you greatly. You would daydream about them. Perhaps you get distracted at work. It wasn't a chore for you to think about them. You delighted to think about the one that you loved. And so it is with the Christian 
in our God. The more we love God, the more we will delight to think about God. It won't be boring to us. It won't be a chore. It is said of the wicked that they forget God. God is not in all their thoughts. They can fantasize about sin. They can dream about wealth and popularity and Lamborghinis and, and, and you know, getting a certain number of likes on Instagram, entertainment. But to spend an hour doing nothing but contemplating their creator and thinking about his character and his love and what he's done, if, if you shut them in a room and just said, hey, just think about God for an hour. I mean, it would be like torture. Like, where's my phone? Get me out of here. I, like, this is boring. I don't want to think about God. Well, why? Because they don't love God. But of those who do love God, the Psalms say, my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate you on you in the watches of the night. I mean, this dude's, he's like, he's thinking about God at night. Like while he's laying in his bed, he's, he's thinking about God. He's not even in church. Love God with your minds by thinking often of him. You know, it's good for us, it's healthy for us even to set aside times where we, where we don't schedule anything. You know, just this afternoon, I'm just going to spend some time thinking about God. Listen, that's not, that's not wasted time. That's worship time. That's part of loving God with all your mind. Set some, I would encourage you every now and then it's, to set some time aside just to think about God, to meditate on God, who he is, what he's done. Sometimes I've, what I've done is I'll just tell my spouse, you know, if there's an emergency, here's where you can find me. But I'm going somewhere. I'm, I'm not going to take my phone with me. I don't want to be distracted. Um, and here's where I'm going to be for the next hour or however long. And, but what that does is it, it just removes the distraction and you can focus on the Lord. And perhaps you're sitting there thinking, well, I've, I've got ADD, I have a hard time focusing even on things I enjoy. Well, I would just encourage you, do your best. Ask the Lord to give you strength. Maybe, maybe your thoughts will, will wander. But when they do, just try to bring them back. Just keep bringing them back. Bring, bring a Bible with you and read it. Sometimes another thing that can be helpful is to take a journal and write your thoughts as you're writing you know, what does this verse tell me about God? Write out your prayers to God, even. We are to worship God with our minds, and this involves thinking often and meditating upon the Lord. Hey, the Lord's Day, Sunday, is, is a perfect day for this activity. It's not, you know, don't just look at Sunday as another day to get things done. View this as a day of worship where you can do such a thing as get alone with God. And, and you wouldn't believe how, how this will give you strength as you enter in upon a new week. As, you, as you've just come from thinking about the love of God, the power of God, and then you, you get into the busyness of Monday morning and your kids are being difficult. Or you, or you turn on the news and, and uh, there's, you know, man, China's spying on the U.S. But but you've just come from thinking about the Almighty God. 
And you're, less, you're a little less prone to be anxious. You have a little more strength and patience to love your children, love your spouse. Friends, don't starve your souls. Think often about the Lord. This is part of our worship. Be heavenly minded so that you may be of earthly good. Love the Lord your God with all your mind. Well, in closing, the Lord's Supper is a religious feast which reminds us of the purpose of Christ's suffering and the promise of his blessing. Christ's last supper with his disciples would be the last time before his appointment with death, but it would not be the last of all. It was the beginning of a feast that has been kept by Christ's followers down through the ages until today and will be kept until that day when it gives way to the feasting in the kingdom of his Father. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have given us these, this token of remembrance whereby you remind us of your promises. You show us the meaning of your suffering. And you invite us to remember how you have loved us, how you have given yourself for us. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in this room that is not at peace with you, that has not found peace with God through the blood of this sacrifice, that they would see that their sin, yes, their sin is so serious that nothing but the blood of Jesus can wash it away. But yet you have loved us so much that you have not held back even that. Lord, thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.